He looked cold, didn't he? <laughs> Must be the temperature. Well, what are you going to do with your life? It's a question that if you read from one end of the Bible to the other, you don't seem to get an answer. The Bible doesn't seem to address that question that is so close to the heart of many of us. Uh, There isn't a chapter in John's Gospel on career counselling. There's no little aptitude test at the back of Revelation so you can work out what career you should take. But it is a big question for most of us because your life stretches in front of you. You've got decisions to make. Will you be a lawyer or a layabout, a plumber or a painter, a surgeon or a surfer? What are you going to do with your life? I think we're on page 12, if you're not sure where we are. Now, I'm sort of the opposite end of life. It's mainly behind me. (laughs) I'm sort of looking back, evaluating and weighing up. Did I I marry the right person? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I I remember sort of going through my midlife crisis. Midlife crisis is when you stop counting up the number of years and start counting down the number you've got left. And yeah, some of us have hit that, haven't we? Uh, But the the question of what to do with my life is very much a first world problem. Most people in the developing world don't ask a question like that because. Well, they've just got to make ends meet. They've got to somehow create a life for themselves. They don't have much choice in countries like Liberia that I spend a bit of time in. The Bible assumes you can live a life of faith and hope and love anywhere, doing anything. But if you ask the question, what will I do with my life? I think this parable of Jesus that we're looking at tonight is probably the closest thing the Bible does to answer that question. Now, the context in which Jesus tells this parable uh, is back in Matthew 24, which is all about the king returning. So come with me to verse 42 of chapter 24. If you've got your Bibles open, I hope you do. Jesus says to his disciples, therefore, keep watch, verse 42, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. The Lord Jesus will return one day. He's telling his disciples before he goes that one day he will come back, but we don't know when. Will it be today? Could be. Tomorrow? Maybe. 2025? Yeah, could be. 2025? No. 200,025? Yep, maybe then. That's quite a while away. Well, how do you live if you don't know when the Lord will return? It's sort of like, remember at school when the teacher left the classroom and gave you some work to do and said, I'll be back. And some people took advantage of it, didn't they? It is a chance to just run wild if you want to. And you run wild and you kick the footy around the classroom and the teacher walks in and you're sprung. But there's another way of of actually doing it badly. That is, you, you do it, you, you sort of are right. You, you still sit at your desk, you don't kick the footy around, you're, you look like you're behaving yourself, but... When the teacher comes back and checks what work you've done while they've been away, you've done none. Now, in my classroom, it was always the guys kicking the footy and the girls who just did nothing. It might have been different in your classroom. And so Jesus said in verse 43, if we don't know when he's coming back, understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and wouldn't have left his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because you don't know when the thief's coming, do you? So you're going to be ready all the time. The alarms have to be on. So you must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So be ready, be alert, as if he could come today. He might not, but he might. But you could easily misunderstand that and think, well, what I should do then is just stop doing everything and just sit and wait, alert, looking for Jesus. Maybe sit up on the roof of the building and keep your eyes skinned the whole time, binoculars out, see if you see Jesus coming. But that's not what he means. Verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It'll be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so 
when he returns. Who's the faithful and wise servant? Well, it's the one who's found still doing the work they've been left to do when the master comes. Haven't finished the job, but they're not sitting around waiting either. No, they're like the classroom. They're, they're there doing the task that the teacher gave them. They're the faithful and wise servants. And in chapter 25, Jesus first he tells a parable about wise servants. The parable of the ten young women going to a wedding reception. Five foolish, five wise. The wise are ready at all times. The foolish were ready for a time, for a bit, but then their oil ran out and they flustered and off they had to go to get some oil. At the critical time, when the unexpected arrival of the bridegroom happened, they were caught out. They were unready. Wise means always ready, not kicking the footy around the classroom. But then we come to this parable of the bags of gold, the the parable of the talents, as it's often called, called, which is about being faithful servants. See, the faithful student is the one who gets on with the task while the teacher's out of the room. And it raises the question, what is our task while our king is gone, while the Lord Jesus is away? And that's what this parable is about. But I need to warn you, often people think that Jesus tells parables as nice little fun stories just to make spiritual truths easy for us to understand. It's not true. Jesus uses parables as weapons, as scalpels, to trap the unwary. Like a scalpel that exposes what's hidden underneath, exposes people's hidden hearts under the veneer of pleasant whitewashed exteriors. They almost always have a a twist to the tail, an unexpected outcome that you're not expecting and catches you out. And this one's no different. The story is fairly straightforward in many ways. A wealthy man goes away for an extended time. Before he goes, he calls his servants in, his slaves in that culture, and he entrusts his wealth to them. He liquidates all his assets, sells his houses, his cars, everything else, his aeroplanes, makes it cash, and he gives the cash to his servants. Not equal amounts, five uh, to one, two to another, one according to their ability, and then off he goes. Two of the servants put that money to work. One servant digs a hole in his backyard and buries the money, safe from thieves. And a long time passes. The servants hear nothing from the master. And then out of the blue one day, the master shows up to settle accounts. And two of them return not just what they were given, but double, and they're commended. One, though, just returns what he was originally given, and he's condemned. What do we make of it? What lesson is this about? Is this some sort of lesson in economics? Whatever you do, don't trust slaves with your money. Well, in order to understand it, it's critical that we, we wrestle with what's meant by the bags of gold. In older translations, it was translated talent. And that's been a source of lots of confusion. Because in our English language, what does talent mean? Talent means ability, isn't it? I'm gifted, I'm talented. Our school had a gifted and talented program, and if you were talented enough, you got into that program and did extra sort of special work, fun work. Now, the the word that is used in Greek in this uh, parable is is the Greek word talenton. And talenton was then transliterated in the King James Version as talent, and that's how the word talent came into the English language. But it's a confusing way to come into the English language because we misinterpreted the parable and therefore we misunderstood what talent means. Talent, as we saw the other night, is actually a weight. One talent was about 35 kilograms, about eight or nine house bricks. If you're used to weightlifting house bricks, it's about eight or nine of them. Put eight in a column, see see how you go picking them up. It's It's actually a fair bit of weight. Is this going to work? Yeah. There you go. Now, in that culture, when you talked about a talent, you're almost always talking about a talent of silver or gold. So one talent is somewhere around 35 kilograms of silver or gold. That's a fair bit, isn't it? 35 kilograms, imagine weightlifting 35 kilograms of gold. You would be very rich. If it was only silver, it was worth around 20 years' wages. In our culture, what's that? million dollars. Okay, so one talent, a million dollars. That's a large fortune, isn't it? 
Have you ever held a million dollars in your hand? I haven't. Have you ever seen it in your bank account? I haven't, nor in anybody's bank account I know. It's a lot of money. And what the master does is extraordinary. He liquidates all his assets, millions of dollars worth of his assets, all his houses, all all his farms, all his houses, all, all his horses and chariots, and he gets all that money together and he entrusts it to his servants. He allocates it according to the ability of his servants, which means the talents can't be ability, can they? Does that make sense? So imagine that I'm going to uh, uh, distribute a packet of Tim Tams according to musical ability. There's Tyler and there's me. Okay? Tyler would get 11 of the 12 Tim Tams, for sure. If I'm lucky, I'll get one of them. So if you distribute it according to the ability, then the Tim Tams aren't ability, are they? There's something different to ability. And so if they're distributed according to the ability, they can't be abilities. But the master recognises that his servants have varying capacities to use the capital. He's about to dump in the laps. So what do these bags of gold, these talents, represent in the parable? Well, a few bits of information help us, I think. The talents represent the master's wealth, his assets. Secondly, the talents can be used to increase the assets of the master by putting them to work, by putting your energy in with the the money. And they're of huge value, more value than a normal servant would ever see in their life, would ever handle in their lifetime. So what is it? What are these talents? Well, it's actually not hard to work it out If you read through Matthew's Gospel, which is the right place to start, and see what Matthew calls something like this, something of great value, that is, that belongs to God, to Jesus. Let me take you to a passage, if this is going to click. Ah, that's too far. Here we go, Matthew 13. This is what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, (laughs) like a big bag of gold hidden in the field. When a man found it, He hid it again, buried it so no one else would find it, and then in his joy went, sold all he had, and bought the field, because in the field was the bag of gold that was worth more than the cost of the field. Or again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls when he found one of great value, went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So what is he saying? What is a great value like this? It's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. To have a place in that kingdom is riches indeed to be welcomed in, to be forgiven, to be given a place in God's family, looking forward to seeing God, that is lavish grace, isn't it? That's been given to you and to me. And to know the secret of the kingdom. That is, the the kingdom is something that can grow and produce a bumper crop. If I know the message of God's grace, the gospel of Christ crucified, I've got in my possession something that can grow and flourish and produce more. And that is unimaginable wealth entrusted to us. Are you a Christian? Do you understand that Jesus died for you to win your forgiveness and a place in God's kingdom? Do you know that he rose again to guarantee your resurrection to eternal life? Has God's grace in Jesus saved you? Has it given you hope and security? Well, has it ever dawned on you what a unique, desperately needed commodity that is. Imagine tomorrow in your um, terrific research that you're doing at university and how clever you are, you invent a cure for death. Imagine that. Do you reckon you could sell it? Do you think there'd be a market for such a thing? I mean, (laughs) the marketing companies would be jumping over themselves to get your business, wouldn't they? Because people already pay a fortune for any sort of treatment that might extend their life just by a couple of years, if possible. We all watch the news and the the results of of health research to try and work out how should I change my lifestyle to live a few more years and not die of cancer so quickly. Because it's what everyone needs, isn't it? Because we're all headed inexorably towards death. We all line up behind Adam, dropping dead, one after each other all facing the just condemnation that we deserve from God. This gospel 
of the kingdom fits everyone like a glove. Your, your family, your neighbours, your work colleagues, your fellow students at uni. You don't need any clever, clever niche marketing to target the people who need this product. And it's not limited to those who can afford it. It's free to everyone. That's incredible value, isn't it? And if you put that gospel knowledge to work, it can increase Jesus' assets, can't it? Because what will be of value when Jesus returns? Your bank balance? Got to be kidding. <laughs> I don't know whether you've read Andrew Forrest's uh, autobiography, but on the last page of his autobiography, he says that his aim in life is that when he dies, the last check he writes bounces. Now, you probably don't understand that because you don't know what a check is. You don't know what it means for it to bounce. What he's saying is, I've got billions of dollars. I want to give it all away so that when I die, the last time I try to pay a bill, there's no money in the bank left to pay it. Because he understands that when you die, having money in the bank is no value to you whatsoever. That's not what Jesus wants. He doesn't need your money. What will be of value when Jesus returns? Will it be developing your talents, becoming the most brilliant butterfly swimmer in the history of Western Australia? No. Will it be the collection of door plaques you have? Foreman, owner, CFO, CEO, MD. Will it be your framed wall, uh, degrees on the wall? No. What will uh, Jesus' assets on the last day will be people, brothers and sisters for Jesus who trust him, who rejoice in him, waiting for him. Members of his church all decked out in wonderful, beautiful, righteous deeds. That's the currency of that day. That's what Jesus gave his life for, isn't it? The bags of gold represent knowing that gospel that gives you a place in the kingdom and the capacity to offer a place to others. So what do these servants do with the money? Well, what it looks like is like sort of venture capitalism, isn't it? The, the business model is you get some money, some capital, and you put it to work. And that's what two of them do. So verse 16, we're told the man who received the five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So it's taking some capital and using it to start a business. This isn't about playing the stock market where you just make money out of other people's losses. This is the capital to begin something, a business where you add your hard work, the sweat to make it grow, a, truck, a trucking company, a farm, a startup enterprise of some sort, and as that, that you plough the work in and as you plough your effort and energy in, it turns a profit through that enterprise and through the energy. Now, notice the master doesn't tell them how to invest the money, what sort of business. He just entrusts it to them to decide. He doesn't send daily instructions from the other side of the world. Monday, this is your job. He just puts it in their lap and leaves. Now, where do you think Jesus got this idea of life from? That God would somehow relate to us by entrusting his treasure to us. That the Son of God might entrust all his assets to mere servants like you and me, to fallible people like you and me. It's a strange idea, isn't it? And yet it's actually what the Bible's been teaching us right from the beginning. It's been God's way all along. The background is Genesis chapters 1 and 2. You know the story. God created this world. He created the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, the globe, the, the trees on it, the animals in it. And he did a pretty good job, didn't he? And then what did he do with it? He entrusted it to humans. He said, fill the earth, rule over it, and subdue it. Now, why did he do that? Was God bored? Was God exhausted? Needed a month's holiday to get over this hard work of creating the world? And he said, oh, who can I entrust it to? Who's going to look after it? Oh, well, humans will have to do. No, that is not the answer at all. This is Psalm 8 that reflects back on that. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you've set in place. What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings, why do you care for us? Why have you made something special of us? Because this is what you did. You made us a little lower than the angels. You crowned us with glory and honour. You made us rulers over the works of your hands. Why did God make us rulers over the works of his hands? 
because he wanted to crown us with glory and honour. All the glory for this incredible creation should go to God, shouldn't it? He made it. He thought it all up. He designed it. He brought it into being. He deserves it in in bucket loads. But he decided to share some of that glory with us. It's sort of like he wants us up there sitting beside him, ruling over his world, his creation, being honoured like he's honoured. You even get it in that idea of subdue. He says to them, subdue the world. You think, subdue? I thought you created it perfect. Subdue implies it was left a little bit wild, a bit untamed, a bit unfinished. Why? Did God lose interest halfway through the job? And thought, oh, I couldn't be bothered finishing this. I'll let somebody else finish it. No. No, he left space for us to make a genuine contribution to his creation. So we could plant a garden and construct a wall and redirect a river and gather a city. To have the satisfaction of surveying the work of our hands and feeling like God felt after creation. The joy and the rest of a good day's work done. But what do you call that? That God would entrust his creation, his work, finishing his work, giving us a space to make a contribution. What would you call that? I'd call it grace, wouldn't you? I'd call it love, love on a grand scale. Of course, it did go wrong, didn't it? Because we weren't satisfied with that glory. We wanted more. We wanted to replace God, supplant God, take all of God's glory. And what did God do? Did he say, well, in that case, you can't have any whatsoever? No, do you remember the promises to Abraham as he restarts, as he kickstarts his great plan to redeem humanity? He says to Abraham, I will make your name great. I'll make you great. Your name, your reputation, I'll give you honour and glory. I'll give it to you. I'll share my glory with you. I'll give you a land to rule over. But the Old Testament is just a shadow, a preview of the grace of God that comes in Jesus Christ. What God had in mind when he entrusted the creation to humans is what Jesus is talking about in this parable. Entrusting to mere fallible people like you and me the future of his kingdom. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't stick around and evangelise the world himself? I mean, he'd do a much better job than me, wouldn't he? Much better job. I still feel that every time I try and share the gospel with somebody. I mean, Jesus could just show his hands and say, look, it's me. There'd be no dodgy hypocrisy. There'd be no child abuse scandals. So why didn't Jesus stay around and do it himself? Because he wanted to share his glory with his disciples, with us, entrust his assets to us. So we participate. He left space for us to contribute, to make a difference, to contribute to his great project of building his church that goes on forever. That's why he invites us to pray so we contribute in that sort of way. So that on the last day, we will share in his joy. We'll sit beside him ruling the new creation. We will have contributed something substantial to eternity. That's called grace, generosity, love to people like you and me. But back to Jesus' parable. Two guys put their entrusted capital to work. But the third guy, what does he do? He digs a hole and he buries it and presumably gets on with life. And life goes on for quite a long time. Think years, decades. There's no sign of the master return. There's no word from him. Just nothing. Silence. And then the master shows up and it's the day of reckoning. And the five-bag guy brings his five bags and more And he says, Master, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. He's thrilled to return more than the five. You can hear the joy and even maybe a little bit of pride in what he says. The two-bag guy, he does the same thing, doesn't he? He says, you gave me two bags of gold. Verse 22, see, I've gained two more. He too gives them. And both are commended as good and faithful servants. They get exactly the same commendation. Verse 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. 
The two bad guys, verse 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Exactly the same. No difference whatsoever. See, they're faithful servants. They've proved to be genuine servants. All those long years, they've been trustworthy. Can you imagine what it might feel like to have Jesus look you in the eye and say, well done? Jesus, to say that to you, directly to you on that day. Rosamond and I have been watching a, uh, a law um, show on TV called The Good Wife. Um, this, this lady returns to work as a lawyer. <laughs> the Good Wife. See, I, I gave her a compliment. Um, and uh, uh, she comes in as a, as a sort of low-grade associate in the law firm. And all the associates are jockeying for position to try and be offered partner. Because they long for the day, they live for the day. I, I take it this is true of every lawyer and every accountant that, that works for those big firms. One day, one of the senior partners will walk into their office and say, well done, congratulations, partner, you've made it. Well, this is not some St George's Terrace lackey who says, well done. This is Jesus, the Lord and ruler, the owner of the universe, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And then surprisingly, it's not time for retirement, but increased honour and responsibility. You've been faithful in little, I'll put you in charge of much in the new creation. But the end of it is they get to share in the master's joy. The master. Jesus is thrilled at what's happened. Their success is to be celebrated. He's going to throw a party that night and they'll be the guests of honour. Boy, it's going to be a great party and it's going to last a long time. They're commended, but the other guy is condemned. He returns the one bag. Master, he says, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown gathering where you haven't scattered seeds. I was afraid and went and put, uh, hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. He explains why. And he sort of expects the master to be okay. You're a hard guy. It's sort of really your fault. If I haven't met your expectations, it's because your expectations were too high. You're really being unreasonable, you know. I had a career to build, fun to have. It's easy to blame God, isn't it? I remember hearing a Robin Williams quip. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he was being interviewed about his philandering ways. Uh, and his comeback was, well, it's God's fault. He gave me a brain. He gave me a penis. He didn't give me enough blood to feed both at the same time. Blame God. And the master says, balderdash. You are the evil and lazy one here, not me. Your own words condemn you. If I really was a hard man, the hard man you claim that I am, you would have at least put the money in the bank and got some interest. Actually, it's just an excuse to cover your laziness. See, what's he been doing all these years? He's been doing what I call foreign orders. When I worked as uh, training to be an engineer, I worked in the workshops of the corporation that um, was putting me through university. Workshops had machine shops where uh, machined all sorts of, 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 of metal, uh, there was places where you welded things, you, you built things uh, out of metal. Uh, there were places where you uh, wired up electrical cabinets and things. Um, and every work uh, job had to have an order number. It was billed against that order number. And I remember working um, in the machine shop one day and I got an order form that came through that instead of a number on it, just had FO on the top where the order number should be. And I did the job, and I didn't think much of it. And then I got another one a week later or so that said FO. And I went to the, um, my supervisor and said, well, what, what does FO stand for? Like, it's not a number? What is it? He said, oh, uh, come into the office and I'll tell you. Went into the office, he said, FO stands for foreign order. That means that probably one of the engineers upstairs wants something for his house or his car, and he creates an order, and he gets us to make it for him. It's a foreign order. It shouldn't be done. He's just doing his own thing on the company's time and material and money. Well, that's what this guy's been doing. He's supposed to be a servant of the master. He's just been living his own life, doing his own thing. He's got no interest in the master's assets at all. He's unmasked as being no servant of this master at all. And what he has is taken away. Verse 28, take the bag of gold from him, give it to the one 
who had ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, whoever has an abundance, uh, and they'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Harsh words, aren't they? His share in the kingdom disappears. He's banished into permanent outer darkness. This story has a real sting in the tail. He claimed to be a disciple. He thought he was, but he wasn't. He was unmasked. Could that be me? It's unsettling, and it's supposed to be unsettling. As we've seen, it's not hard to understand what Jesus' assets, what the Master's assets will be on the last day when the Master Jesus returns. It's people, people who've come to faith in Jesus, grown more like Jesus. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gathers his disciples in front of him, this same group, and he gives them a commission, go and make disciples of all nations. He doesn't say, go and build bridges and roads and collapse, because Jesus is going to need them in the age to come. He doesn't say go and get more uni degrees as if Jesus will take pride in those. He doesn't say go and build a property portfolio because I'm not going to have a place to stay in the age to come. No, it's go and make disciples, followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters he can share with. He died to save people, not cars, not iPhones, not houses. Paul says something similar as he writes to the Philippians. He says, what is our hope? Our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes, is it not you? It's, it's people, it's you guys. See, Paul had brought the gospel of Jesus to Thessalonica. A whole bunch of them had come to faith in Jesus. His labour, his prayers had been fruitful. They'd contributed to growing Jesus' assets. And that growth was forever. They will be there on that last day, entering the kingdom, the, the, the new creation. <laughs> And when they're there, they'll say to Jesus, Jesus, thank you. What you did was so incredible. You know what Jesus will do? He'll say, Paul, I'm really glad that you contributed to that as well. And Paul looks forward to that day because Jesus shares his glory with Paul, his joy with Paul, and so also with us. Well, this is some of the detail. Let's zoom out and get a bigger picture that, that Jesus is painting for us. Because this parable is not so much about the moment-by-moment -moment decisions, whether I read my Bible today or not, how many children I might have if I ever get married, which footy game to watch on TV this afternoon. It's about the bigger question of my life, how I see myself and what I do with my life. So in Jesus' story, it's about this life. And he says that what is this life about? If I'm a servant of Jesus, this life is about increasing his assets. Just like in the Garden of Eden, when God entrusted the world to, to humanity, he entrusts the task of increasing his assets to us, his disciples, his servants. And we're entrepreneurs in that. The servants aren't told where to invest the capital. It's just dumped in their laps, more money than they'd seen in their lives. They're free to work out what will increase Christ's assets. They're free to work out how they'll use their time and energy, their lives and this money, this treasure. There are no detailed instructions coming in the mail each day or on their phones. And there's differences between them. It's apportioned according to ability. Hey, let me tell you about two friends. We'll call them X and Y, because X squared plus Y squared equals Z squared, doesn't it? Well, I did some maths at some stage. I can't remember it. X and Y. X grew up in a terrific Christian family. He experienced as he grew up, as well as heard, the gospel of God's grace in Jesus. He's smart. He's got the gift of the gab. He's had opportunities to study and train. Y is the same age, but his father was an alcoholic. His mum died when he was young. Life has always been a struggle for him. He's been on the street a bit. He didn't finish school. Both of them are rich. They both have a place in the kingdom of God. They both know Jesus died for them, but X has far more capacity to see the gospel grow than Y. Both can and do increase Jesus' assets. But Jesus isn't expecting the same from each of them. We, we mustn't compare ourselves to others. It's a useless exercise. Jesus is not expecting you to be a Tim Keller 
or a Steve McKerney. What he's expecting <laughs> is faithfulness, a good servant with what he's been entrusted with, to use my life to increase his assets, not mine. By burying the gospel in the ground, that last servant, that's unfaithful, that's lazy. See, what did he say? I presume what he said is, I've got my ticket, I'm fine, the rest can go to hell. That is not faithfulness. But what does this say about my occupation, my job, my career? Of course, most of you are at university studying arts or engineering or physio, whatever it might be, and I presume that the picture you have in your mind is that you study that in order to spend the next 40 to 50 years working as an arts whatever. What does a, a, an engineer, a physio, whatever it might be? So what is Jesus saying? What does this parable tell me about what to do with my life? Is Jesus saying you should quit your, your study and quit your day job and everyone become a pastor? Well, not exactly, but I hope you're beginning to see that Jesus wants me to rethink what I'm doing with my life, probably. Because the occupation he's giving me is not a career. The occupation he's giving me is to increase his assets. I've got freedom in how I do it. I can try all sorts of things. I can be creative and inventive, but that's my occupation, is to work out how to increase Jesus' assets, to use the capital Jesus has entrusted to us. That's my occupation. We may well have a job because we've got to eat something, but the job is not what occupies our affections, our creativity, our energies. Imagine for a minute that you open a top secret envelope from God and inside you find a phone and on the phone is a message. And the message says your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to increase the assets of Jesus on the last day to use your life to see as many people as possible trusting and honouring Jesus when he returns. But what could you do if that was your mission? Well, I'm a parent. I could put real energy and time and prayer into raising my children to know the love of God for them in Jesus. Maybe I'll work in McDonald's. I could start praying for my workmates, spend a bit of time hanging out with them, even risk it all by asking if they'd be interested to find out more about my Lord. Maybe I earn a good salary, or I hope I will one day, and I could fund a project that builds and runs Christian orphanages in India or Zimbabwe. See, the primary question, in the sense, is not what to do, it's whether I'm a good and faithful servant, whether my heart is in growing the assets of Jesus in eternity or just having a good time here, despite what, uh, what's been entrusted to me. So if I want to be a servant of Jesus, if I want to increase his assets, then there's a couple of questions I must ask, I can't avoid. The first one is, in the situation I'm in at the moment, what can I do to grow Jesus' assets? I'm a student. I'm studying. I sit in classes with a few other people, the ones who bother coming at least. There's downtime between classes. There's 23 weeks a year where I've got no classes and no exams. What could I do in my situation at the moment to grow Jesus' assets? That's the first question. The other question I've got to ask, I think, is could I do more in the future by changing my situation? They're good questions to ask, aren't they, if that's where my heart is. And note the encouragement from Jesus to be creative and entrepreneurial. Dream and scheme, discuss, think through with your friends. I wonder what we could do, what I could do, what you could do, given who we are. I have a friend who invented a valuable piece of technology used in the mining industry. After he did his PhD, he started his own company, and his company makes good money. He works pretty hard, but it makes good money. Six years ago, he approached me with a proposition. He said, would you be willing to move to Africa and set up some pastor training there, and I'll fund it all? I just about dropped dead. He said, I'm convinced that this could make a difference to the health and growth of the gospel in Africa. I don't have the skills to train the pastors there. You do. I've got the money. You haven't. Can we do something? Another friend I know has a gaggle of small children. And almost all of her life is cooking and changing nappies and washing clothes and playing with the children at all hours and trying to get them to school and when they're sick, nursing them through many nights. But she's realised that the park near where they live 
is a haven for other young mums like her. So what does she do? Well, she wants to increase Jesus' assets. So she spends time in the playground, getting to know them, helping out, opening doors for talking about life and about her, her God graciously. See, all this involves sort of stepping up and taking some responsibility, doesn't it? It's interesting that in both phases of life, this life and the age to come, the servants are given responsibility. In this life, to faithfully use the master's assets dumped in their laps. In the age to come, they're put in charge of more of the master's assets. I suspect that most of us have a love-hate relationship with responsibility. We sort of hate it because we don't like the weight of it. If I take on some responsibility, I'll be sort of restricted and confined. Maybe I'll fail, I'll be exposed. I'd rather just avoid it, thank you. But we also understand that the challenge and opportunity of responsibility is terrific. We won't achieve anything worth doing unless we take on some responsibility. So we do want promotion. Many of us want to have children. If you're the first sort, we fear it. Can I say to you, Jesus wants you to step up. He really does want you to to take some responsibility. He's given you an incredible asset. He wants you to take responsibility for doing something with it, to grab it. Time to be a man, time to be a woman, not a child anymore. I remember the one talent guy. Now, the longer the master was away, the more sensible his approach to life appeared, don't you reckon? See, the two others are beavering away. He's doing his own thing, having some fun. As long as the master didn't come back, it all looked terrific for him. But the master did return. And on that day, he's exposed as evil and lazy. But you've got to get Jesus right. When he says, he talks about burying your talent, it's not about not using your natural abilities. One of our first world heresies, one of our Christian first world heresies is you must use your talents in your job, in your career. We've learnt that since, uh, since we were born, really, in most of our families, our education system. I hear it so often. God must want me to be a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, because that's my talent. I'm talented at doing that. That to not use it would be to bury my talent. No, your talent is the gospel. Is being a member of the kingdom and knowing the kingdom. Your gifts and abilities put you under no obligation to use them in your career. It's not why God gave them to you. He gave them to you for building his church. Paul actually tells you in 1 Corinthians 14, if you've got an ability that doesn't build the church, bury it. There's a right place to bury your abilities. But it's never a good thing to bury the gospel. (coughs) See, to bury your talent is to embrace the gospel, what God's done for you, and then put all of your life's energy into anything but the growth of the gospel. And my observation, sadly, of Christianity in Australia is that's a reasonably accurate picture of many Christians in our churches in Australia today. I say it with trepidation. I may be seriously misjudging, but I say it with even more fear that I might be right because the consequences are very serious. What I see, what I observe is many churchgoers calling themselves Christians, saying I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus, for whom being a Christian is sort of a hobby on the side. Like playing sport is a hobby for most people. It's a bit of fun when you've got nothing else to do. It's not what life's about. See, these people, if they have a master, it's their job or their family or their leisure. They have hobbies and Christianity is one of those hobbies. What's this guy's real problem? I take it he didn't really believe that the master was coming back. Or he didn't want to believe it. I'm not quite sure which. He may have ticked the box. Oh, yeah, the master will come back one day. Jesus will come. But it's not how he lived. That didn't shape his life. I reckon the only way you'll ever live like the first two servants is if you really believe that your master is coming back one day. And when another years go by and he hasn't, you say to yourself, but I know Jesus If he's still away, it's because he's preparing a place for us. He's giving us more time for his gospel to grow, for more people to hear and respond. He died to secure my place in his kingdom. He's going to come back for me. I I know that. He rose again to begin a new creation. 
If he's begun it, he's not going to stop halfway. He will complete it. He will return. And so I'll keep investing my time, my energy, my abilities into his kingdom, into his people, into his assets. He's given me so much space to contribute. Another year means even more space. We began by posing the question, what to do with my life? Unlike me, you're at the beginning of your adult life, most of you. And so far, not much has been asked of you except to do your study and be nice. But if you've begun to grasp the gospel of God's extravagant grace with, with some clarity, with some depth, and I presume with some joy and amazement, well, tonight we've seen another dimension of that grace. Jesus has entrusted the riches of his grace to you. And part of that is creating a space for you to put his gospel to work, the gospel of his grace, so that on the last day, Jesus is widely honoured by more and more people for his saving grace. And we get to experience a sort of flow on from that, a part of Jesus' kindness to us, some of the joy and satisfaction of having contributed to what's happened that day. So do you know that? You can actually do things in this life whose effect will be eternal. You can. That's what Jesus is doing. He's giving you space for that to happen. When I was in grade six, year six at school, um, I used to get sent to Sunday school by my parents. I didn't want to go. Um, and I was in a class of, I think there were five or six boys. Do you know what grade six boys are like? Yeah, most of you boys do because you were that. We were rascals. We had a teacher called Mr Page. He was the most gentle man you could ever come across. We used to pull all sorts of tricks on him. Um, you know, we'd move his chair when he was about to sit down, the poor guy collapsed on the floor. And he kept coming week after week, despite what we did, and just teaching us more about Jesus. And I remember he opened our home to us. We used to go there occasionally. He lived down in the bush, a place I loved to go and visit. And he'd ask us in and, and, and he'd put some scones on and we'd chuck them all down, stuff our faces with them, and still treat him like dirt. I'm looking forward to the day when I meet Mr Page in the age to come and I walk up to him and I clamp him around the, the shoulders and say, Mr Page, do you know that what you did helped me get here? If it wasn't for you, I don't think I'd be here. And I presume when I do that, he, he, I mean, I'll have tears in my eyes and he'll, he'll have tears in his eyes as well, tears of joy that what he's done has been used by God to do something so good, so gracious, so brilliant. And Jesus will be there as well. And I guess we'll both say, Jesus, that's all because of you. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful servants. That's what Jesus is describing. A friend I went through uni with was an A-plus student who was set on being a successful engineer. His parents had encouraged him down that track all his life. He had all the right abilities. But in the middle of his third year at uni, his uncle died and left him a business. It was a chicken business worth about $100 million. Now, you're probably not surprised to, to hear that he found himself rethinking what he'd do with his life. Hardly surprising, an event like that. He couldn't avoid at least asking some serious questions about what he was going to do with his life. Well, that's pretty much what God's done to me and you, isn't it? He's dropped the gospel into our laps. Obviously, it's going to make us rethink what we do with our lives. Not in a forced way. There's no, I must do this or I must do that. I must become an overseas missionary. No, there's wide open spaces. You're free to decide. But you must ask the question, what could I do? Could I go to the Middle East? Could I go to Pakistan, to a less reached people group? Could that possibly grow Jesus' assets? Could I become an evangelist among high school students in Perth? Could I build a Jesus church in Noangara by becoming a pastor? Now, looking out over this group, it's hard not to think that you guys, almost all of you, are in the four to five talent category, if you understand my meaning. He gave out talents according to ability. Well... The, the people with more ability have more potential to increase Jesus' assets, more than most other Christians, and that's you, isn't it? You're young, you're clever, you're articulate, 
You're mobile. If you've got an Australian passport, you can get into most countries in the world one way or another. Now, I'm not flattering you. That's just the reality, isn't it? Our education system has funnelled you into that system. It, it, it gets all those, it filters them out and puts them all at university. Well, not all of them. Some are clever enough not to go to uni. But most of them end up at uni. They just follow with their noses where everybody else leads them. And you're here at university. That's who you are. You are the four or five talent sort of people. So what will you do with your life? Now, humanly speaking, this is the time of life where you start to figure out, you start to make decisions, explore options of what you will do with the rest of your life. You could just stay on the track you're on, but you've had this dumped in your lap. Surely we need to rethink, at least reconsider. And if you're thinking, well, yeah, I should do that, but I really haven't got a clue what I could do. Well, do something at least. Talk to a friend about it. Maybe talk to one of the staff workers or an older Christian about what you could do with your life. Come to Challenge Conference. You can't avoid that now, can you? See, as you hear Jesus speak to us in this parable, he forces you and me, all of us, to ask the question, what sort of servant am I? Now, remember, this is addressed to disciples, in a sense, near the beginning of their lives as disciples. It's exposing the decision they must make now, today. Do they intend to be wise and faithful servants or evil and lazy servants, not really servants at all? So if you look back in your brief experience of life so far and it all appears shades of grey, I'm not quite sure whether I am or not, then today's a good day to decide what you're going to be, isn't it? A faithful and wise servant or a lazy, wicked servant? Or if you look back and recognise that it's the lazy and wicked servant I've been, well, today's a good day. Jesus' parable has done its job brilliantly. Turn now, because the master hasn't returned yet. There's time. And if you look back and see a faithful servant getting on with serving the master, even though there's no sign of his coming, there wasn't yesterday, there wasn't last week, then be encouraged. He is going to come. And you'll never hear a better sound than Jesus looking you in the eye and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enjoy your master's happiness. Amen.